Oh, Father, we pray that you would speak to us this morning in all the ways that you have contrived in the hearts of men to speak through our singing and praises, O Lord, and through the proclamation of your holy word this morning. We pray you will speak to us all, and your Holy Spirit will apply the word to our hearts, O Lord, and that we will walk away from this place filled with the spirit of righteousness. Amen. Well, I had a little vacation away, and I availed myself of being immersed in the Word of God and the sermons of great preachers on the subject that we have before us, which is the exposition of Paul to the Romans, the epistle of Paul to the Romans. And we're still there, and I have no intention of rushing through it, and so we're in chapter 3 yet again, and I'm going to ask you to open to chapter 3 of Paul's epistle to the Roman church of the first century, Romans 3, and I'll read the first nine verses. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the prophet of circumcision, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God? But what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words, that you may overcome when you're judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Father, in Jesus' name we ask, O Lord, that you would add your presence and the power of your Spirit to this, the reading and proclamation of your holy word. Father, in Jesus' name, let this eternal task be accomplished today in this service. Amen. For what if some did not believe, will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Now, we've covered some of this ground before, and when last we met, I labored greatly to enlighten you, or to elucidate this argument of Paul with regard to the advantage of being Jewish. There was a great advantage, he said, in being Jewish. First, he said, the Jews are equally uh, under the wrath of God as are the Gentiles because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the apostle anticipated an objection there. And the objection would be, well, if the Jews are equally uh, guilty before God as the Gentiles, what was the advantage of being Jewish and of having all of the rites and rituals and the written word of God? And the apostle said, well, much in every way. So we have to learn to parse a little bit. They're guilty, but they're not absolved. They have an advantage, but it didn't advantage them enough. So this apostle's first mission, and you may note this as as you're reading through this, note that Paul is evangelizing. His first mission is evangelistic. He's the premier evangelist, friends, of the first century. You know, in 10 years, he established the churches on all of the known continents of the world and claimed that his work was done, and they were firmly established. This is a great servant, a great faithful servant of God. 
And as such, he's ever engaged in the conversation of the spiritual condition of men's souls. Friends, that's, what's a, that's what evangelism is about. It isn't, oh, give Jesus a try, you'll have a happy life. It's about the condition of your soul and recognizing the desperate shape that you're in before God. Well, my friends, think highly of me. It's not so with God. Paul's first impulse in that mission of evangelism is to establish need in the sinner. Because it's a strange thing about being a sinner. There's a blindness that goes with it. And we don't seem to know that we're sinful. And even when we know we're sinful, we don't think we're really that sinful. In other words, we don't see the exceeding sinfulness of our sin. We don't see the exceeding desperation of our situation. And so Paul is always interested in this conversation about the condition of men's soul. Paul wants the whole world to be saved. As he would put it, both Jew and Greek. That constituted the world for him. Those were the classes. All right? And so it's his mission to proclaim that all fall short of the glory of God. And no one has done it. And we'll get to this next week, but I might as well read it to you. The very famous passage on the condition of man. There is none righteous. No, not one, he says. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. So much for those of you who think your free will chose God. In your present condition, you don't even have the equipment to choose God. Or to even seek for God. They've all turned aside. They've together become unprofitable. There's none good. No, not one. Try to make a little sliver of of objection there for yourself. That's what men do. Their throat is an open tomb. Their tongues they practice deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Mouth is full of bitterness and cursing, swift to shed blood, destruction and misery in their ways. Peace they have not known, and fear of God is not before their eyes. That's quite a list. Calm down. I didn't write the list. I read the list. All right? Paul's always concerned that we recognize that if you are saved, friends, it's nothing for you to boast of because you didn't do it. It's thoroughly and wholly a work of God. And it's a good thing it is because, as you can see, you didn't have the equipment to do it. Friends, if you're saved, either God saved you or you're saved yourself, I would go with the first option. Because those of us who save ourselves are not truly saved. And so it's Paul's mission to proclaim that all fall short of the glory of God. All men share in the danger of divine wrath and judgment. All men who would be saved must know their need for salvation. They must see their sin. This is why the apostle hammers home this theme of utter sinfulness of man. It's called total depravity. We gave it a name. And in their sin, and in their seeing of the need of Christ, they have to find their way to the cross of Christ. It's admittedly, friends, Jesus himself says, it's a narrow path to Calvary. It's a narrow path. But our merciful God is ever faithful to take us by the hand and lead us through the narrow gate. He's ever faithful to take a repentant soul by the hand and lead him into the grace of Christ that was bought at Calvary by the precious blood of a dead and resurrected Savior. Do you know, Christian, that you don't belong to yourself? You were bought at a price. 1 Corinthians 6. You were bought at a price and you are not your own. And so he arrives at this pivotal question. If some of the Jews, though they have been blessed with marvelous advantage in the quest for eternal life, did not believe, does that make the promises of God of no effect? 
Does the unfaithfulness of God's chosen people mean that their special status was futile? Does it mean that if they fail in the task of keeping the law, that the law was a failed strategy in directing a people to their prophesied Messiah? Did God speak to Moses at Sinai for nothing? And Paul's answer is no. Friends, Jewish faithlessness will never accrue to define unfaithfulness. We can't make God unfaithful because we failed. We can only praise God that he's faithful to redeem us even though we continually fail. And this is Paul's message. And so the apostle offers this thunderbolt of gospel truth. He says, certainly not. Some of your older texts might say, God forbid. That's a mistranslation. The word God is not used there. Certainly not, he says. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. His argument to this point is that the law is good if it's used lawfully. Friends, never take on this view that God tried with the law to save the Jews, and he failed. But alas, God is ever resourceful. He's an ever-resourceful deity, and he had a plan B in his back pocket, and he took it out and said, well, then we'll do away with the law. That didn't work. We'll try something else. We'll try sacrificing my son on the cross. That's how absurd that view is. It has a name. It's called dispensationalism. That's how absurd it is. God never has a plan B, friends. Everything he speaks comes to fruition. His word will not come back void, we like to say, right? The apostle said. So let God be true, but every man a liar. His argument to this point is that the law is good. If it's used lawfully, the statutes are holy. The decrees are righteous decrees. A man's guilt never falls in the lap of God. Your guilt of sin is on your shoulders, not in the lap of God. The word was an advantage. Of course it was. The law was a signpost pointing to a man nailed to a cross. We're coming up on Easter. We're coming up on Easter. The anniversary of the man being nailed to the cross. And if you go back to the time in Egypt 3,500 years ago, 35 centuries ago, when the children of Israel were in Egypt and Moses was calling down the ten plagues upon the people of Pharaoh, to let my people go. And finally there came this plague of death, the death of the firstborn of every living thing in the land. And God gave Moses a recipe for survival. He said to him, here's what you'll do, because I will preserve your firstborn. He said, what you will do is you will go out into your flocks and you will find a male lamb, the firstborn of its mother. It cannot be spotted It cannot be marred in any way. It must be the purest, wooliest little white creature of the flock. It must be the firstborn male of its mother. And you must take it and you must set it aside on the 10th of Nisan. And for five days you must look it over and inspect it for all the various defects that could come up that could disqualify that lamb as a perfect sacrifice to God. And he said, when you've all done that together and the 14th of Nisan does come, What you will do is you'll sacrifice this lamb, everyone together. And you'll take the blood of the lamb and you'll put it over the lintels of your doors and the doorposts, the lintels and the jams of your doors. You'll put it over as the blood sign that you're under the covenant of God. And that lamb's bones are not to be broken. And that lamb's entrails are are to be disposed of before sundown. 
and you're to do all these things. And they did it. And the angel of death did come over Egypt, and wherever the blood was not displayed, the firstborn of that household was killed. Even if it was a pet or livestock, every firstborn was killed as the curse of God upon the land, but not in the houses of the Israelites who so displayed the blood of the Lamb of God, you see. And what was it? Did the blood save them? We know from the book of Hebrews, the blood of goats and and calves can't save you. What saved them? They honored the covenant of God. This was not a saving ritual. This was a signpost pointing to the perfect Lamb of God who was the firstborn male of his mother who went into Jerusalem on the triumphal Sunday morning. We call Palm Sunday. And he went into the praises of the people. And they received him. And that was the 10th of Nisan, just the day that the lambs would have been chosen. And they inspected him each day. He went into the temple and they inspected the lamb. And each day he beat them at their own game. And they tried to trip him up in his words. And they tried to show that there was a defect in him. And for five days they could find no defect in him. He was the perfect lamb. He was the firstborn of his mother. And his blood would be sprinkled over them for the life of their souls, you see. It was a signpost, friends. And some of the Jews saw it. But most of them missed it. And when Christ hung on that cross, they did not see the Passover lamb. Friends, it was Passover. How did you miss it, you might say? How did you miss it? And what did they do? They came out and broke the legs of the other who were crucified. And they didn't break the legs of Christ because no bones could be broken in their true Savior. The true lamb's bones didn't get broken. God didn't care about the bones of those little lambs. He was making a signpost for us to see that all through the ages he had one plan, one plan for the salvation of your souls and the establishment of the church. One plan from beginning to end and according to prophecy and all that recipe, if you will, that he gave the Israelites, all those centuries when they practiced this, they were to see the saving Messiah dying on the cross. Some saw it. It seems David understood. He wrote Psalm 22. That's the very Psalm Jesus preached when he was hanging on the cross. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, said the Lamb of God. They came out to break the bones, but the bones couldn't be broken. It all had to be according to prophecy. And he was crucified with the corrupt, but he was buried among the wealthy. Everything was fulfilled. He rose again on the third day. All of this was fulfilled. All of the law. It was not a failure, friends. Certainly not God's failure. It was our failure to see it. It was a Jewish failure to see it. Was it an advantage to have it? Absolutely. Did it make God unfaithful? Obviously not. He was faithful. He carried it out. He pointed it out and he carried it out. The word was an advantage. The law was a signpost pointing to a man nailed to a cross with his bones unbroken, buried in the grave, risen again from the dead. Friends, few heeded it. Consciences of good men are good things, friends, but they're not good enough. And so the apostles developing his polemic in such a way as to demonstrate that all human effort for salvation is futile and unworthy. In fact, to try to save yourself is almost a blasphemy. It can't be done. If you knew your need for God, and that's why Paul establishes this need. 
That's why he says there's none righteous, no, not one. What's he doing there when he says that? This is going to be next week's sermon. I'm sorry, but I have to put it out here today. He's saying it to the Jews. These are Old Testament scriptures that they would well have known, and he put them all together in what's called a katina, several bullet points, if you will. There's none righteous, no, not one. And so he develops this theme that all men need Christ, even those who have the signpost. They still need Christ. It was an advantage to have the signpost. You know, we could say Simeon understood. Remember Simeon in the temple? We could say the prophetess Anna understood. John the Baptist certainly understood. He said, behold, the Lamb of God. Why would you call a man the Lamb of God? That was a strange name. So when a man finally finds his way into the saving embrace of the Savior, it will not be by his own strength and he'll know it. He'll have nothing to boast of. He'll just fall on his face and say, thank you, Lord. No strenuous effort of man can bring us there. No work of righteousness can be righteous enough. No Jewish rite or ceremony can save. No pagan ritual or stoic philosophy can cleanse us. And so he crafts his epistle to declare the awful reality of sin. It is about need. Any salesman has to establish need. Anyone ever sell anything for a living? Establish need. Friends, to see our sins is to see our need. And to see our need is to cry out to God. And though this apostle is not averse to speaking fearfully of wrath and judgment, neither is he averse to speaking of the tender attributes of God. He talks about the wrath of God, but he talks about the love of God. He talks about the mercy of God. People say God is love, and of course he is, but that's not all he is. He's an unfathomable, magnificent being. And so he speaks of wrath, but he speaks of justice and mercy, benevolence and kindness, And so man who could not find his way to God must come to see that his only hope is that God would find his way to him. And so God's faithful, though every man is unfaithful. And there's the answer to Paul's question. God is strong, though every man is weak. God is powerful, though every man is impotent. God is holy, though every man is a sinner. And God is true, though every man be a liar. Friends, the church of the first century was a diverse body. There were adherents there from every nation and province, from every race and creed. Now, culturally, it was a Greek world. The Greek language was spoken throughout the three continents of the Mediterranean, right? Europe, Africa, and Asia. And yet the Jewish people had for centuries migrated abroad and were present in every corner of the empire. But here in Rome, there's a representative body of Paul's fellow Jews. And so the argument begins by establishing that though a man is Jewish... Though he has had access to the written word, the so-called oracles of God, that his connection to all things Jewish in no way absolved him from the guilt of sin that their Gentile brethren shared in, and Paul would have them see it. Now, having said all that, Paul will not be accused of saying that the Jews, the keepers of the written word, the so-called oracles, the offspring of Abraham, the witnesses of Sinai, were without advantage. Of course they were. And so we noted last, when last we met that though Jewish guilt of sin before God was not different than Gentile guilt, it's the same, that being exposed to the word was indeed a great advantage or should have been, right? Paul says very cleverly, I think, what if some did not believe? He knows full well most of them did not believe. 
And so we concluded that just as the children of Jewish households were blessed with exposure to the mind and will of holy God, so are the children of today's Christian households. Uh, young people, if you were brought up in a Christian household, and some of you older people were brought up in a Christian household, you were blessed among all those in the earth. You had exposure to the gospel of God from your earliest days. Exposure to the things of God is always a significant advantage toward finding our way to faith in Christ. And so we read, what advantage then has the Jew Oh, what's the profit of circumcision? And the apostle answers, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. And so as he engages in this work, in this particular mission of the moment, which is to write this epistle to the church of the premier city of the ancient world, if they will be Christ's church, then they will be apprised of the true doctrines of Christ. If they are to call themselves God's people, then they must have access to the knowledge of God that qualifies them to carry on as God's people. If they're to preach the saving gospel of Christ, then they must be rightly oriented with regard to the principles of the gospel of Christ, hence the great work of the epistle to the Romans. Friends, this epistle has been heralded as the saving moment in the lives of so many great Christians. Luther was saved by reading the the book of Romans. Wesley was saved by reading what Luther wrote about the book of Romans. John Bunyan was saved by reading this passage. Augustine, great Augustine from the 5th century, was saved by reading that the just shall live by faith. And so he writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Friends, this is no time to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. There's never a good time, but above all times in history, this is a, what you might call a hinge of history. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Right? As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Friends, without that passage, imagine Christianity with no Augustine, with no Luther, with no Wesley or Bunyan or so many others. Take note of the apostle's clever understatement. He says that he's not ashamed. Now we know all the while what he's saying is, I'm so proud of the gospel of Christ. I am so emboldened by it. I am so privileged to be the spokesman of it. Of course, he's not ashamed. It's his badge of honor. It's his pearl of great price. He has little of temporal or monetary value to impart to the world, but he knows no lack of value in the thing he's been entrusted to impart, the glorious gospel of the living God. No, he's not ashamed. He's speaking it from the mountaintops. He's speaking it in the marketplace of Athens. Men of Athens, remember? I see you are a very religious people. I see by the objects of your worship that you're very religious. I noted one particular monument to the unknown God. This is the God that I came to proclaim to you. The one that you don't know, I know. What an awesome lead-in to the gospel. That's not a man who's just not ashamed. That's a man who is standing on truth and is proud of the fact that he gets to address these people in the name of God. And so Paul's logic is probing and convincing. He knows that we all strive to exempt ourselves from condemnation by presenting our personal worthiness. But he sees the gospel as the ultimate prize. He's authorized to preach it. It's the roadmap to the things that pharaohs and kings sought out from time immemorial. What do you think those pyramids are about? They're about eternal life. Did they provide it? No. The pharaohs are still there. 
The gospel is the path to eternal life. It's the escape from the curse of the world and the ravages of sin. Friends, no monument, no pyramid, no embalming agent, no mummified wrappings of scented linen can preserve the soul from what sin has marred. No statue, no monument or obelisk, no epic poem or melodious song can save you when you face your end, friend. Only Christ can save. No ceremony of last rites and nomination. That doesn't save anybody. That's priestcraft. No ceremony of last rites will wipe away a lifetime of sin. No rite of priestcraft can save you. Only faith, only naked, unadorned profession that the Son of God came and died and rose again can save you. And that's this apostle's treatment. All we can hope to do is plead with the Savior to remember me when you come into your kingdom. But only Christ can say, today you'll be with me in paradise. So as we've noticed, the first impulse of the evangelist must be to establish need. And that's no easy task. It's to convince the hearer, the man on the street, the philosopher in the marketplace, the jailer in the prison, remember? The statesman in the halls of justice. Remember Paul to uh, Agrippa? He said, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I wish that you were all together just as I am, except for these chains. (laughs) By the way, they took them off. I got a special word of knowledge on that part. Um, No matter their temporal status in the world, all were equally in need of a savior. All had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The man in the ivory tower and the blind beggar on the street were all sinful before God. And it doesn't take God any more energy to save one than to save the other. There are no exceptions, no exemptions. That's why I read the list. So we would remember, no one gets accepted. And so we labored over the apostle's skillful argument in previous sessions. The evangelist in him knows that the heart of man is wily, though. He knows that each man secretly rests upon his own inner sense of his own personal glory. He knows us. We all take refuge in our inward high opinions of ourselves, and we're very skillful to find evidence of our own personal righteousness apart from an intervening deity who knows us better than we know ourselves. And so Paul's logic is probing and convincing. He knows that we all strive to exempt ourselves from condemnation by presenting our personal worthiness. Well, obviously, the man who wrote this list does not know me. That's why it's difficult to establish need. So he uses his considerable intellectual powers to outwit every disputant by presenting the facts of life and creation and the human condition and the character of God as they really are and not as we perceive them or contrive them or wish them to be. And he answers the objections of Jewish priests and Stoic philosophers and he brings them all into one camp. Why? Because it's a diverse body. All those parties are in the church all with their own previous worldviews about the human condition and what we need to get to heaven. And so he makes the case for need, and he presents our need as a, as a desperate condition. Friends, once you see your sin, it isn't like, you know, I might have some time on Thursday to ask the Lord Jesus to uh, absolve me of my sin. It can't be like that. You haven't understood the desperation if that's it. He presents our need as desperate. It's, a, it's desperate because we're all under the wrath of an omnipotent God. And so as soon as the salutations are made, I'm Paul the Apostle, I've given this particular mission, uh, he, as soon as all of the pleasantries are gone, he makes this statement, friends. 
he makes this statement of cosmic proportions. He says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's The gospel has cosmic proportions. God's wrath is over the whole world and over all men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's why I don't dare stand in this pulpit and diddle around with little Christian cliches. No, it's the wrath of God that we're trying to escape here. The God Paul preaches, friends, is an angry God. And I must stress to you today not to fall prey to the preaching that takes no notice of wrath. And it's all over the place today. We must take the apostles' lead and seek to establish need. Our gospel is not clinical or therapeutic. Here, take this and you'll be fine. Say these few verses, these Hail Marys, you'll you'll be okay. It's not therapeutic. It's not clinical. It's not a pill for what ails you. It's not an elixir to lift your spirits. It's not for those in search of a better life. It's not a thing that wipes away the stresses and problems of the day. It does not promise happiness in the here and now. But it is the most pressing need for every soul that ever opened a womb. As long as we stress those things, friends, we allow excuses to refuse our offer. As long as we say, oh, Jesus will give you your best life now. What are you going to say to the rich man who thinks his life is perfect? You haven't created a need for him. What about the man that says, I'm I'm already happy. Things are going pretty good for me. Preach your gospel to the homeless. Tell the addict on the street he's the one that needs it. What about the guy that says, why are you trying to make me feel guilty? I have no inner sense of guilt or need. I'm not a sinner like other men or like one Pharisee said. I thank God that I'm not like other men. He said, what arrogance. I'm not like other men. I thank God I'm not an extortioner, unjust adulterer, or even this tax collector. And he pointed to the man who was properly calling upon God in his humility, knowing he was a sinner. And so the Lord said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you for my sake. That doesn't sound like a promise of a great life. Blessed are you when they persecute you? Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, because it wasn't so great here. He's admitting it. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In this life you will have persecution, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. There's a lot of books today by evangelists that go right against that bit of gospel truth, friends. And so the first impulse of this evangelist is not to tell a man that God loves him and has a wonderful plan for his life. I know of no such place in Scripture where that's said as a point of gospel truth. I don't know what God's plan for your life. God had a plan for Abel's life. It cost him his life. God had a plan for Jacob, and he worked 14 years for the woman he loved and was betrayed by a ruthless father-in-law and pursued by an angry brother all his life. God had a plan for the sons of Israel, and they sold their brother into slavery and lied to their father about it. God had a plan for Moses, and he left the splendor of Egyptian royalty to live in the wilderness 40 years and was forbidden to enter the promised land when he got there. That was his wonderful plan. God had a plan for Job. He lost it all. He had a plan for Samson, who was betrayed by his wife and blinded by his enemies. And so I wonder how many men would change places with these men. Samson had a great finale. So did Job, right? But you had to get there first. These men lived a long time. God had a plan for Jonah. Jonah wouldn't come by faith, so God brought him there by fish. I hardly think today's man on the street wants to 
bear such a wonderful plan as that. God had a wonderful plan for the life of Paul, but I hardly believe that too many men would want to change places with him. He said to Ananias, go, he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, and I'll show him how many things he must suffer for my sake. All we do is get on our knees and plead that no suffering comes upon us. The wonderful plan for Paul's life was a life of wonderful suffering for Christ. He wrote to the Philippians of joy unceasing, of rejoicing upon rejoicing. The man was in prison. The first impulse of Paul in evangelism was never to start out by saying, oh, come to Jesus just as you are and we'll deal with the sin problem later. We'll get to that. I heard one great preacher, I say great because of his following, millions of people. I don't, I don't talk about sin. I, I don't know much about that. I'm not like him. That's all I know about. I'm an expert on sin. Done enough of it. And so is he. He just doesn't know it. The apostle isn't concerned with preaching your best life now. That's the title of his book. He's not concerned with luring you in with tempting promises of wealth and health and personal glory. He's not saying, is life hard? Give Jesus a try. Friends, that's not the gospel when you do that. If only the evangelists of our day saw the blasphemy in such things, they may not be more saved, but the ones who claim salvation, friends, would be truly saved. And you have to wonder if so many are. My friends, it is we, not God, who is enamored with the testimonies of great sinners. We love to marvel at the one who hit rock bottom, the bottom place of addiction and homelessness and found the love of Christ who remade him. I love to see the power of Christ in those things as well. But show me the evangelist who convinces, convinces the rich man of his need. Convince the rich man in the ivory tower, in the corner office, on the 33rd floor. Convince him to forsake his ways. Show me the repentance of a man who sees his life as perfect. To see such a change in that person is would be truly remarkable. To see him give one-tenth of his money to the church, one-seventh of his time to worship, a hundred percent of his time to prayer and study, and then I'll truly marvel at a man's testimony. And try to remember that it takes no more effort of God to convert the addict on the street than the choir leader in the church, or a boy scout than a gang member, or a bank robber, or a corrupt politician, or a Muslim, or a Catholic. God can convert whomever he will. It's not more marvelous that he converted one than the other. That's only us, man-centered people that, that get a kick out of that. I get a kick out of the young men who grew up in the church, came to Christ early, and never rebelled. And never had to go out and be reaped on the street for their addictions. The one who honored mother and father, and didn't covet, and didn't commit adultery, and did keep God before his eyes, and honored the Sabbath day without excuses. So many excuses. You know, Jesus has a whole series on excuses. He doesn't like them. You know why? Because they're sinful. They're lies, friends. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. And so we can see here how the evangelist anticipates the objection. He anticipates it. That's what we should do when you're evangelizing. Don't go out there cold to be surprised every time someone gives you an objection. You should know what the objection's going to be. After a few times, you'll know it's always the same. Well, I'm a good person. I don't need that. Tell someone else. That's one objection, right? Oh, I'm Catholic. I go to Mass every week, and my mother got, went every day, and that accrues to me. And um, You know, it's called supererogation. 
You know what that is? That's when the good deeds of one person is so good, he's a saint in the Catholic tradition. He can give some of his good deeds to you who have done evil all your life and sort of bolster you up and lessen your time in purgatory. That's a true doctrine, okay? So we can see how the evangelist anticipates these objections. He asks the question that a hearer of the gospel will ask. Have you ever done this? I've done this. Have you ever imagined how an argument for the gospel will progress in a prospective hearer? You say, you know, I haven't given the gospel to my brother in a while. What's he going to say when I say this? You can figure it right out. You know him. You know what he's going to say. You know he thinks he's clever. You know he thinks he's like the Pharisees who could outwit Jesus. You know, should we pay taxes to Caesar? They made Jesus talk politics. He didn't want to. Friends, all men have sinned. I do this thing all the time where I say like Paul, I speak as a man. He's admitting, I speak as a man. Um, It's a good development for a preacher. I like seeing Paul say that. I like saying, every now and then, I speak as a man. I see the objection. I know what men are going to say, so I'm putting it here, and he puts it in parentheses. It's good to know the apostle thinks like we think. So try not to be surprised by objections. You know what they're going to be. And use the the word of God to convict. Oh, really? So you're not a sinner. Jeez, the, the, the Bible says that everyone is. He says there's no one righteous. No, not one. How did he miss you? You know, he, he, he must have missed you when he was in, in the creation scheme. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. Are you saying you seek after God? God says no one does that. If every man is a sinner by nature, how is it not righteous of God to inflict wrath? And if man's unrighteousness demonstrates God's utter righteousness, then why is it not a good thing to magnify and increase our unrighteousness so that God's righteousness can be demonstrated. In other words, Paul's saying none of the righteousness that you do can accrue to salvation. You can't earn it. And the man will say, well, why should I try to be righteous then? That's what he'll say, right? Paul anticipates it. And then he says, in fact, we ought to commit more unrighteousness that God would be glorified. And Paul says, as we are scandalously reported as saying. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, I was reading him all week, reading Martin Lloyd-Jones. That's a good thing to do. I don't want you to do it because if you read Martin Lloyd-Jones, you'll find out that I'm really nothing without him. I'm a shell of a man without Martin Lloyd-Jones. But no, Martin Lloyd-Jones was was saying that very thing. He was uh, talking about man's unrighteousness and the objections that, uh, that people bring up. What shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? So Lloyd-Jones says, if your preaching isn't attracting a charge of antinomianism, you're doing it wrong. Isn't that interesting? You know what antinomianism is? Antinomianism, anti means against and nomos means law. So antinomianism is a heresy of the Christian faith where our good works accrue to nothing, therefore it's not sinful. We don't have to follow the law. We're saved in Christ. We don't have to do good works, right? That's antinomianism. If your preaching doesn't attract that criticism, you're doing it wrong, Lloyd-Jones says. But be prepared to answer it when the criticism comes up. You see what he's saying? It always goes to that. The clever man will always say, well, then I will sin that God's grace may abound in me. Man will always go there. And what does Paul say? How can he who is dead to sin live in it any longer? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he gives that famous answer. 
And so Paul's answer must be our answer, and we must realize that in any discussion, we must never go to the place of questioning the ultimate righteousness of God as though he's capable of encouraging sin. In other words, it's a stupid question. It's cynical. The man intended it to be cynical. He's trying to bring down the gospel of God, but it can't be done. God's character is a constant. It is a given. It is an inexorable certainty. So we do not need to answer charges of inconsistency or profligacy in God. And here again is a Jewish advantage. You see, the Jews knew what blasphemy was. I doubt it would have been a Jew that would ask that question. The Jew knows the character and attributes of God. He knows that this whole catena of bullet points of the unrighteousness of man came from the scriptures that he studied all his life. He would be wary to speak against those. And so Paul's answer must be our answer. And we must realize that in any discussion, we never go to the place of questioning the ultimate righteousness of God. The Gentile only knows the character and attributes of human goodness, which falls short of the divine. But the point Paul is making is a difficult one, friends, for priests of Israel or the Stoics of Greece to understand. It's also difficult for the pragmatists of present-day America to know. Life's pretty good. Why do I need the gospel? All you religious people do is tell me I can't do things. That's what people think. And by the way, don't make up things for people not to do as though it's holier, as though you're somehow holier than God in your rules. There's a lot of things that we can do that a lot of evangelicals will tell someone you shouldn't do those. Tell someone not to commit adultery. There's plenty of that going around. Tell them not to cohabit with his girlfriend. There's plenty of that going around, right? But don't tell him he can't smoke. Let him get over that in another, in another way. You follow me? That's not keeping him out of heaven. It's a bad habit, I'll grant you. It's also difficult for the pragmatists of present-day America to see their need. It's not that man's incapable of righteousness that gives glory to God. It's that God redeems the unrighteous in spite of his inability or undeservedness that gives him glory. It's not that you and I are incapable of achieving glory that gives glory to God. It's the fact that he glorifies us anyway that gives him glory. And not just glory, friends, but all the glory. God will not share his glory with anyone. We can't say, I helped them along through my belief. By the way, I want to parse something for you because I find that this is a little point of confusion. The just shall live by faith. Let me ask you a question. Can faith save you? Faith, does faith save or does Christ save? Christ does the saving. Faith is the medium or the instrument or the access. Faith is the access to the saving presence of Christ. It's Christ that did the work. Faith didn't die on the cross. Christ died on the cross. Faith didn't rise again. Christ rose again. And so the evangelist is God's instrument. He's the agent to tell the person that the access to Christ is through faith in him. You must believe. And so it's not just glory, but all the glory that God wants in the saving act. Lloyd-Jones makes this remarkable observation. He wrote, and here, of course, and actually he didn't write it, he, he preached it. Someone wrote it down after he preached it. And here, of course, is one of those tremendous principles which we must grasp firmly. God's unconditional promises do not depend upon the faithfulness of man. And he said, indeed, were that to be so, there would never have been a salvation at all. 
That, in a sense, is the great message of the Old Testament, he says. God has chosen his people. He has made them for himself. He gives them all the promises. He treats them in grace. And yet, look at their constant and repeated failure. Friends, it's hard to read the Old Testament. They don't last very long in grace. They fail continually. All through the centuries, they fail. Friends, he took them out of Egypt. And the minute they were away, they complained. They were thirsty. They didn't have leeks and onions. Remember the leeks and onions? Oh, the great produce of our taskmasters. Immediately they changed. And God said to Moses, I'm going to wipe them out. And Moses interceded. God's chosen his people. He's made them for himself. Lloyd-Jones writes, he gives them all promises. He treats them in grace. And yet look at their constant and repeated failure. It's been left to them. The nation that might very well have been exterminated. And none of the promises of God would have been brought to pass or would have had any effect. And then he goes on to say, what a comforting doctrine this is. Friends, it ought to be comforting, not fearful, that even though you can't do it, God did it. What a comforting doctrine is this, Dr. Lloyd-Jones writes. Take the Christian church herself. If she had been a human institution only, it's perfectly certain that she would, never, that she would have ceased to exist centuries ago. The reason why she's still in existence in spite of man's failure is that she is in the purposes of God. Let God be true and every man a liar, he says. Paul makes this profound point in another place. To the Philippians, he says, and I'm sure you know the verse, he who has begun a good work in you, and he's talking to the church. This isn't really an individualized thing. The you is plural, okay? He's begun a good work in you. He'll be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Friends, The church fails in various ways as the people of old failed. But we're not going anywhere. We're going to be here until the end. This pulpit might not be here. This building might not be here. You and I might not be here. But the church of God will be here until the very last ember cools. I've said it many times, many times to you when I mount this pulpit to preach. I'm so glad I don't have to do this job. And you're thinking, the pastor's quitting. Give him his resignation. I'm not saying that I should not bother to do my best. It's unthinkable for me to stand here unprepared, though, or uncertain of what I'm saying. It's my duty to prepare ahead, to research, to write, so that my thoughts on a text will be orderly and understandable. Teacher has to teach in an orderly way. Go to 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 for an understanding of that. But the man of God must know that apart from a visitation of the Holy Spirit of God in me, my words are nothing. The words fall to dust. If the Holy Spirit doesn't give them life. And apart from a visitation of the Holy Spirit in you, you'll observe not, absorb nothing of my words. If all you're doing right now is waiting for lunch to be served, you're probably not getting a lot out of the sermon. Flesh is weak. <laughs> Jesus himself said this very thing. He said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Friends, he is here in the midst of us. That's a promise to his church again, all right? From beginning to end, your salvation is the work of God. He saves us. We do not save ourselves. And this apostle is intent on portraying the futility of human efforts toward salvation. It's futile. Every attempt... To save yourself is but another tower of Babel constructed to reach heaven by human effort. And at its highest pinnacle, the God of heaven, 
must still come down to that little high tower we thought we built. Must still come down to meet us where we are. His love is that he did come down. His glory is that he saved us when he got here. Father, in Jesus' name, we praise you for your word. Even the harshness of it, O Lord, we praise you. Because as the faithful Dr. Lloyd-Jones has written, God's word never hurts God's people. May it bolster us and edify us today as we pray it glorifies you by our services to you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.